Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Scottish Independence Podcast. This week we have an episode of the TNT show with guest Professor Aileen McHarg. She is a professor of public law and human rights at Durham University. And in light of the Supreme Court case hearing that we've had while we wait for the results, um, it's quite interesting to get her take on matters. So here's Aileen talking to John Drummond. Hello. And welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 minutes. Oh, and by the way, you can watch the TNT Show on IndieLive.net. It's streamed out on YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. Tonight, we are talking to a special guest. We'll be discussing the news from the Supreme Court with Professor Eileen McCarg. And Eileen is always worth listening to. Uh, But with the Supreme Court in full swing, there could scarcely be a better time to talk with her about matters constitutional and otherwise. Eileen, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. A little bit stressed today, but but otherwise very well, thanks. Why are you stressed? Uh, well, uh, as you mentioned, the um, Supreme Court has been hearing the independence referendum reference yesterday and today, so I've been trying to uh, listen to as much of that as I can but it falls during half term. So I've got children at home and other things to do endlessly. So yeah, a bit stressed. So with your professional constitutional expert hat on, what have been your thoughts about what you've seen and heard today at the Supreme Court? Well, so yesterday and today, I managed to hear all of yesterday's. Today, I missed the crucial bit where Sir James Eady argued why a... Uh, referendum wasn't within the competence of the Scottish Parliament, which was a bit annoying, but I have read his written submission. So there was an awful lot. What I heard particularly today was an awful lot of very technical discussion about particular provisions of the Scotland Act. So a lot of focus on whether or not the reference should be accepted by the court uh, and, and less, surprisingly little today at least, on that the substantive question, does the Scottish Parliament have the the power to legislate for a referendum unilaterally without the agreement of the of the UK government. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, I guess a lot of people are trying to follow this whole discussion. I suspect many of them find it quite off-putting. Uh, if you're not a lawyer, legal niceties don't amount to a can of beans. They, they, they sort of get in the way of understanding rather mm. than facilitate it in many respects. Yeah, yeah. Alec called Hamilton's today. Said he'd lost the will to live. So, yes, quite a lot of people, uh, quite a lot of people share that. I mean, I, I wasn't particularly surprised at the focus of the of the the arguments on very dry and technical issues. That's how I thought it would go, and that reflects uh, the nature of the submissions made by the Lord Advocate and the Advocate General for Scotland. The SNP's submissions, as you probably know, the SNP made a separate intervention, um, but they were restricted to written submissions. They weren't allowed to uh, present their arguments orally. Uh, Their arguments were a little bit more interesting because they were talking about uh, issues like the right to self-determination and international law and and the proper approach to interpreting uh, the Scotland Act in the light of that right right to self-determination. But that didn't play much of any role in the the deliberations of the of the court of the past couple of days although there were some references lord sales today was asking questions about democracy and the right you know the 
the, the appropriateness of facilitating the democratic process and so on. So there was a little bit of reference to the, yeah. the, those underlying issues. Yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting you should say that because I think from a, a layperson's perspective, it's much easier to access legal arguments through a discussion of morality, i.e., is there a moral right of, of self-determination? I mean, that's mm -hmm. easy to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, the nuances of the Scotland Act are far harder to grasp. Yeah. That's just, which is why I'm so glad you're here tonight, <laughs> because I suspect there are many thousands of people saying, I watched it. I'm not sure I understood much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so looking back over the, the last two days, what, what's been your general view about not, not just the arguments, but the listening to the members of the Supreme Court and reflecting over their comments or questions or suggestions, is there anything that surprised you? Um, I, I think that the degree of focus on, on, the, on the procedural question, are we going to accept this reference or not, to, at the expense of, of discussion of the substantive question was maybe a little bit um, surprising that first sight, but then on reflection, maybe not so much because the substantive question of whether the the Scottish Parliament can legislate for a referendum it's been around for a long time. It's been debated for a long time. The parameters of the debate are really very well known. Whereas this reference question for lawyers is a really novel question and and actually quite a difficult question. So it's maybe not surprising that the Supreme Court justices were probing a lot more on that issue than they seem to be on the on the substantive issue. Perhaps they felt they understood the substantive issue better from the you know from the written submissions, and they they you know they have to make up their mind obviously, but they don't find it tricky in the way that they obviously found that the procedural question very tricky. I mean you know. I tweeted at some point today, you know, that they were getting their knickers in a bit of a twist over the meaning of paragraph 1F of Schedule 6 of the Scotland Act. And law students should take comfort from that. And indeed, you know, here is the most senior judges in, in, in the UK, obviously really struggling with this very important but rather obscure question, uh, question of law. But, you know, this obscure question of law could turn out to be very, very important in uh, the resolution of this uh, of this issue and and, and in the, the the course of uh, of of the political debate the constitutional debate in Scotland. Interesting, you should say that. I want to read you, if I may, from uh, a tweet by a unionist group, which is always fun. They are maintaining three things, uh, and uh, I like your comment on this. Uh, leaving aside the politics of it, let's forget the source. Uh, first of all. It's got, the Scottish government will fail, and they said on three grounds. First of all, the Supreme Court will decide it's premature and it goes away. Secondly, uh, the bill would relate to reserve matters, which is, as they put it, our constitution, and therefore you can't enact it. And so therefore it will go away. Three, yes, you can hold a referendum without UK consent, as they put it, but it would have no legal standing and it would be simply a glorified opinion poll and therefore it will be boycotted. <laughs> right. Okay. So, Construct that for us, please. Yeah. Well, the, the third one obviously contradicts the previous two because something that the, the Scottish government has been absolutely clear about forever is that if they cannot lawfully hold a referendum 
under the Scotland Act, uh, and whether that is because they can already do that, they've already got the power to do it, or um, as in 2014, you know, there's an amendment to, to the Scotland Act. Unless that either of those things is in place, the Scottish Government is very clear they will not hold a referendum because it won't work. I mean, they, they, they can't force local authority returning officers to organise a poll, to you know, distribute polling cards, to count the votes, unless there is legal authority to do that. So I think the whole question of, this has annoyed me for quite a long time, talk of a wildcat referendum, it's not going to happen. It's either a legally valid referendum or it's not. Now, if the Supreme Court does say that the Scottish Parliament has the power to hold this referendum, I think one thing that's been really interesting, certainly in the written submissions from the Advocate General, is they accept that that referendum would be politically very important. It wouldn't be legally, it wouldn't mandate any legal result. It would be advisory or non-self-executing, to use the terminology uh, that uh, the, the Lord Advocate used. But it was absolutely central to the Advocate General's case that that referendum would be politically really important. So you can't have your cake and eat it. No, either it's a lawful referendum and it's politically very significant or it doesn't happen. There is no, there's no halfway house. There is no wildcat referendum that can be boycotted because it's unimportant. Am I right in thinking that no referendum or referendum in the UK is legally binding? Brexit wasn't legally binding. Uh, so the Brexit referendum wasn't legally binding. That's true. M most referendums are not. Occasionally they are. So the, there's, there's three examples where there was a binding legal effect. The two, the, the two in 1979, the two devolution referendums in Scotland and Wales, and the um, alternative vote referendum in 2011. In both cases, um, had the um, had there been a vote in favour of devolution or, or alternative vote, it would have brought into effect uh, the relevant legislation. However, even that could have been reversed by a subsequent UK Parliament. So, you know, in a system where you've got a sovereign parliament, it's very difficult to say that parliament is ever bound by a, a referendum result. But in most cases, it's just... It's just a result. It's just a declaration of a public opinion um, on the particular issue. And as you say, Brexit certainly was. And we know the Supreme Court said in the first Miller case that we couldn't leave the EU on the strength of the referendum alone. The UK Parliament had to endorse that through a further, uh, further act of Parliament. Interesting. We've had a question uh, here. Uh, could Eileen please talk about the inverted commas, sweep up, close inverted commas, clause, I think from section 31 or 33 of the Scotland Act. <laughs> right. You're free to say you know. <laughs> it wasn't section 31 or 33, it was paragraph 1F of schedule 6 to the Scotland Act. Yeah, oh. this was, um, uh, so under schedule 6 to the Scotland Act, the, there is a power for the Lord Advocate and the other law officers to make references to the Supreme Court of devolution issues. And there's a whole series of, of specific issues that are listed at the beginning of Schedule 6 as devolution issues. And then at, right at the end of paragraph 1F, it says, 
or any other question arising from this act relating to reserve matters. And the Lord Advocate is saying, uh, well, the question I'm asking the court is a question arising from this act relating to reserve matters, so please answer it. Uh, whereas the Advocate General is saying, no, no, that's not what it means. That means something much, much narrower. And a lot of the discussion today was him trying to give a plausible alternative reading of that, uh, of that provision, which he was being constantly questioned on by, by the judges. So kind of every time he had uh, escaped one question, they came back with, with, with another question because... Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. That 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 was what the whole that's what the whole debate is about. Were those words, which appear on the face of it to allow the, the Lord Advocate to make this reference, do they actually mean something much more specific and much narrower, which would not include um, this reference? I hope that answers the question. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that, that's it. It sounded helpful to me. I thinking about the whole business of sovereignty. Um, and what the First Minister has been saying recently, uh, when questioned about what the verdict of the court might be uh, if it turned out not to be in her favour, and by her favour I mean uh, we regard it as legitimate for you to have this referendum. Mm -hmm. uh, her view was, in that case, we'll, we'll, we'll do something else. We'll have a, a plebiscite, or I can't remember the exact terminology, but we will have a general election perhaps predicated upon one single issue, mm -hmm. and on the strength of that, uh, uh, that will determine whether we proceed. I wasn't quite sure what she was going to proceed with, assuming that that, that happened the way she wanted it to happen. What could she proceed with? I mean, what, what's, what's the... Because you, you, your earlier remarks seem to me to be very clear. There's only one way to do this. You can't declare UDI. You can't have a well-cut referendum. There's only one way to do it, which is through the Supreme Court endorsing it. And if they don't, then where does she go? Well, well, okay. So, so I mean, you could have UDI, UDI, but it's a risky strategy, right? Because UDI depends for its depends for its effectiveness on other states recognizing it, and that is taking a very, very big risk. If they don't yeah. recognize your your Declaration of Independence, it hasn't worked, and all you've done is you know, created a significant internal political problem. Um, secession in the UK constitution, in some ways, if you compare it with other countries' constitutions, secession in the UK constitution is really easy because all you need to do is to persuade the UK parliament to legislate for it. That's all you need to do. There is nothing else that's prescribed. There doesn't have to be a referendum. There are no particular conditions that need to be applied. It is as simple as that. You persuade the UK Parliament to legislate for it. Now, of course, it's not as simple as that because how you get to that point is, is the, you know, the million-dollar question. How do you persuade the UK Parliament to legislate for independence. But there are many potential routes through which you could achieve that. A, a referendum has come to be seen as the gold standard route, and I, I think for very good reasons, because you're making a huge constitutional step. You want to make sure that it has the consent of, uh, of the people, and it's been properly thought through, and, and all of those things. But technically, it, it's not required. So the, the plebiscitary election 
is an alternative mechanism. It used to be the SNP's policy until about 2001, I think, possibly slightly earlier. Their view, pre-Scottish Parliament, of course, was that if you uh, if they were to win a majority of Scottish seats at a UK general election, that would give them a mandate to enter into negotiations. So, you know, we're seeing this. I think that we see the plebiscitary election as an alternative way of trying to put that pressure on the UK government to come to the table and negotiate. But it doesn't come with any guarantees, any more than an advisory referendum does. It's just a means of putting political pressure. And there are other ways that could be done, um, you know, of greater or lesser degrees of, uh, of, of problematic nature. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there'll be people watching uh, and listening tonight uh, who take the view that there was a claim of right which was endorsed by uh, Holyrood and Westminster. On the basis of that, that uh, effectively there was an agreement there that the Scottish people were sovereign. Yeah. They contend, since this was passed by both parliaments without demur, I believe, then they feel that that entitles Scotland to press ahead well, with whatever it so desires. And in addition, Margaret Thatcher agreed with the SNP position back then that you described. She said that if a majority of Scottish MPs are from the SNP, then that would be regarded as permission to negotiate. Yeah. No, I think these are very important political arguments. So the UK constitution, as you know, is an uncodified, unwritten constitution. Not everything in it is written down. Lots of it depends on conventions and other kinds of political understandings. So, yeah, that, that sort of political acceptance of Scottish nationhood, um, of a right to self-determination, has always been uh, has always been important. But because it's political, because often not going anywhere beyond the kind of broad statement of principle, then the question of how you operationalize it, you know, how you get from an acceptance of the sovereignty of Scottish people to the point of, of voting to become independent remains very, very vague. And I think one of the things that's quite that's been quite interesting about the attitude of the UK government over the past few years, where they've, you know, they've refused a section third another Section 30 order, we've had an awful lot of now is not the time or it was a once in a generation event and or, or, or there needs to be higher support or, you know, whatever condition I'm going to pluck out of the air today. What has rarely been denied, not never, but rarely been denied is the right at some point under some set of conditions to become independent. So I, I think that is still quite important, that, that, there, that very few Westminster politicians, not, I mean, not none, but very few are denying the foundations of the case. All of the dispute is around about timing, is around about conditions, is around about who has the right to determine when a referendum takes place. And, and that, you know... <laughs> That's a difficult position because it's 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 very difficult to keep postponing that, you know. And if you're going to accept a right of self-determination in principle, to keep postponing 
the operationalization of it to keep coming up with different reasons why not now, but maybe at some point in the future, but we're not sure when. I think that's a difficult that's a difficult argument to to or difficult position to maintain into the long term. So at some point, clarification is probably uh, is probably required. I was chatting to Elliot Boomer. He did a piece on the Sunday National about Malta becoming independent. And that whole process was hugely facilitated by the Foreign Office. Mm-hmm. They actually did the heavy lifting. <laughs> they said, they said, we'll produce a paper on a constitution. Yeah. So the, the Foreign Office has a lot of experience in drafting constitutions. <laughs> Isn't that somewhat ironic? The, yeah. the Foreign Office, an arm of the British government, was yeah. a factory for producing constitutions yeah. without them being a, having a, constitu- a written constitution itself. And yeah. they, they produced this written constitution for Malta. Mm-hmm. And the Maltese yeah. went ahead and voted on it and, you know, yeah. the rest yeah. is the history. If the UK government, the UK parliament wants to facilitate a, a process of, of independence or decolonisation, uh, these are obviously different things. Scotland is not a colony, it's part of the, it's part of the UK. Uh, it, it has the power to do that. It's so just a question of how you, you know, how you get to that point. And of course, the UK has experienced secession from one you know, by one part of the UK. Ireland, most of Ireland became independent through a process which was eventually agreed, but of course didn't start off like that. Uh, and that's one way, in not a desirable way at all, but it's one yeah. way in which you put pressure uh, on the UK government to, uh, to to come to terms. So that's what I said, that, you know, there's, there's the, the key point is getting the UK Parliament to legislate for the referendum, how you get to it, there are a spectrum of more or less desirable ways of getting to that point. I, I, I wonder if it was the Irish experience that uh, that John F. Kennedy was reflecting over when he said, if you make peaceful change impossible, you make uh, revolutionary change inevitable. Um, uh, and that it's my, my sense of it is that's what happened in, in Ireland, as you say, not terribly desirable. We've had yeah. a question uh, from James, who says, uh, essentially, if the Supreme Court says no, then it proves that Scotland is a colony. Well, I, I mean, I don't agree with that. This, Scotland is not a colony. Scotland, I mean, colonies don't have representation in the UK Parliament. Colonies don't have... Uh, well, they have some right to self-government, but, you know, we're not a colony. We're part of the UK, and that is an important difference. Uh, If the Supreme Court says no to a referendum, what it's saying is that it doesn't think that this is what was envisaged uh, under the the Scotland Act. Well, there's no plausible argument under the Scotland Act. The Scotland Act can be changed. The Scotland Act can be... I mean, it can be changed in both directions. If the Supreme Court says... The Scotland Act does permit a unilateral referendum. That can also be changed. I don't think it would be. I think that would be an incendiary step um, for for the UK government to take. But it's legally uh, it's legally possible. So uh, the UK has a very very flexible constitution, and, fle- and flexibility can be very helpful in some circumstances. Um, it can be very unhelpful. Uh, in, in other circumstances. But I, I don't think you can say that just because a piece of legislation is interpreted as not allowing for something, that that, that means that, that Scotland 
is is a colony. Devolution is a limited. Uh, the powers of the devolved parliament are are legally limited. We've always known that that is in the nature of devolution. It would be in the nature of a, a federal system uh, as well. So answer this question, uh, please. People have suggested on social media that uh, in view of the fact that a referendum was entirely legitimate in 2014, why is the UK government challenging that uh, situation now? Well, <laughs> there's a number of potential answers to that. I mean, so one would be that um, the UK government, the Cameron government, accepted you know, all of the things that his predecessors had said that you said earlier, Margaret Thatcher accepted the right of the Scottish people to become independent if they so cho chose, so that could you know you could see it as a principled stance in 2014. You, you could see it as a principled stance that wasn't wasn't perceived as being terribly risky because you know 2011 when the SNP won their majority, support for independence in opinion polls was pretty low. Nobody would have placed money on it. You know, you, you, the odds on, on, a, on a yes vote at that stage would have been very, very poor indeed. Um, so, you know, it's easy to take a principled decision in circumstances where you think uh, the risks of that backfiring are quite, are quite low. But I think you've probably got that mixture of principle and pragmatism. Why won't they allow it now? Well, the, you know, it, we're in a different situation in terms of the opinion polls. Public opinion is much, much more uh, evenly balanced than it was uh, back uh, back then. But you, you've also got, I suppose, a whole range of principled and pragmatic arguments against a second referendum as well. I mean, to to, to play devil's advocate here, I know that the, this is maybe not what, what people want to hear, but uh, frequent secession referendums are regarded as destabilizing so if you look at the literature on secession you know they tend to advocate quite long periods between them northern ireland is a big exception to that because there's only a seven year interval between border polls in northern ireland but let's put that to to, to one side uh, and you might also say of course while we're going through brexit and we've gone through uh covid maybe the now is not the time argument did to have some plausibility but those both of those sets of arguments become weaker you know the longer things go on we're already eight years after the first referendum uh, it'll be nine years if a referendum is held next year so you know the, the longer you delay the longer those kind of the, the, the less plausible those kind of arguments uh become and i think you know the 50 years and things like that are are, are in the sky really that's that's not I don't think anyone would would seriously argue for the 50 years should be should pass between the secession referendums but the way we're moving just now is that that looks like a, a likelihood let's put it that way if nothing stronger unless you're suggesting that it would be untenable for the UK government to say not now for the next six years not now for the next six years is a different proposition to not now for the next 42 years. Uh, so 50, I said, not 15. Oh, 50. Sorry, I misheard you. Yeah. So sorry. You know, so, so uh, as I say, you know, is 15 years between referendums reasonable? Well, maybe. 
is 20, maybe, but the longer you get, the less reasonable that position becomes. And and if, you know, opinion, public opinion continues to, support for independence continues to rise, then it becomes more and more untenable because you've got, you know, the longer you go on, the, the more of the electorate had no choice, you know, didn't get a vote in 2014. And, and so the democratic arguments for having a second vote become stronger. I'd like to sum up now a little bit, just to summarise some of the things we've been talking about. And, and please stop me if I've um, misunderstood what you've been saying, that there's no way of knowing right now, uh, you didn't say this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to suggest it anyway, there's no way of knowing right now which way the Supreme Court is going to go. And it may take weeks, I, I hear, before it delivers a judgment. And we conceivably, we could be into next year <laughs> before that happens. But if they decide that, no, it's not in the control of the Scottish government to have a referendum, that it becomes fraught with difficulty for the Scottish government to plow ahead with their own and hope that that works in any way, shape or form. Yeah, that, I mean that's right. I think I think if the if the Supreme Court says no, then the Scottish government simply cannot, as things stand, organise a viable referendum. It just it just can't. So unless th- there would need to be a further amendment to to the Scotland Act, and I guess that would be. I mean that might be somewhere where where they would move to. There there are arguments out there for, uh, you know, people talk about a a UK Clarity Act on the model of the Canadian Clarity Act that specifies uh, the conditions under which independence referendums can take place, you know, what the the franchise would be, what the interval would be, um, what the voting threshold would be. So so that, you know, that might become uh, one strand of... um, uh, of, of opinion, but yeah, it's it, what what this does, what this will do, if that's if that is the outcome of the Supreme Court case, is to just push this back into the political arena. It has to become a question of political negotiation, and that has to become you know that that is a question of what kind of pressure the the Scottish government can bring to bear on the UK government, and, and I would suggest that the that the the key issue there is going to be the level of public support. You know, if if levels of public support rise to con, you know a clear and convincing majority, it is difficult. It's not impossible, but it is difficult for a UK government with all this history of acknowledging the right of the Scottish people to self determination to keep resisting the the exercise of that right. But there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees, and also you mentioned that. There could be some sort of clarity act. I mean, what would what would there'll be nothing to prevent, I assume, Westminster, the Parliament of Westminster deciding that there ought to be a, a fairly minimal constitution for the UK. And in that constitution, or it may not take that particular descriptor, but um, some form of legislation that uh, echoes the Spanish constitution, uh, which, if I recall right. Uh, asserts that the territorial integrity of the state may not mm. be changed. Mm. That's a well, I mean, yeah, it does. That, that's what the Spanish constitution says. I mean, the, the, the constitution can be amended, of course, 
uh, but that requires a special pr process. I mean, the difficulty with that kind of position in, in the UK context is, of course, Northern Ireland, because it's written into the Good Friday Agreement that, that Northern Ireland does have the right uh, to leave the UK and, and form part of a united Ireland if there is a, you know, if there is a vote in favour of it. And that right has actually been accepted for a century, you know, right back in, going back to 1922, the people of the, 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 the Northern Ireland Parliament, as it was at that time, was given a vote on whether or not they wanted to join the Irish Free State. Uh, and, and it was, you know, the, the, the right of the Parliament to... Um, to, to veto any attempt to to uh, to get rid of Northern Ireland from the UK. That was written into a statute in 1949. It then became a, a, a referendum requirement in 1973 uh, and has been repeated. So in the Northern Irish context, it is very, very well entrenched that the, there is a right for... That, that the people of Northern Ireland remain part of the UK only uh, with their consent. And if they they want to leave, they can leave. So any kind of solution that vetoed secession altogether in the UK context would have to contend with uh, that position in, in, in Northern Ireland. So it could, it could never be for the whole of the UK unless, you know, you want to breach the Good Friday Agreement and reignite uh, the troubles in, in, in Northern Ireland, which I would hope that no... Uh, no government would would even contemplate doing. But, but couldn't you easily pass an act that says uh, uh, this act applies to other constituent parts of the UK, but uh, does not apply to Northern Ireland? Well, you could do, but then you know, <laughs> then that raises a question of consistency. Well, why and and why well, would why, you? Why do you have, why would you have to be consistent? Well, because consistency is always a good thing, isn't it? If you're not consistent, it, there is a, there, it's incumbent on somebody who's not consistent to justify that lack of consistency. And, of course, sometimes it can be justified. But it's not just Northern Ireland. I mean, we had a referendum on independence in Scotland in 2014. Why was it OK in 2014, but never, ever again? Really? I mean, that's, again, a difficult position to, to argue for. And I mean, you could say, I suppose... Uh, if you were so minded, it was a terrible mistake to allow yeah. that in 2014, yeah. and we're never going to do it again. Yeah. But I, I think that is going to be a position that's difficult to persuade a significant number of people of the marriage. Although you know there'll be a lot of objection to that, I think. Yeah, but I mean, it, you know, what's if, I was a, if I was, a, is, uh, is a good thing. yeah, if I, if I was an MP MP looking uh, for for. Uh, promotion. I might want to uh, suggest such a, such legislation. I might say, look, we made a terrible mistake in 2014. Northern Ireland is a special case, and we should make sure that's properly uh, recognised and honoured. But as for the rest of the UK, I mean, this is ridiculous. Why are we even talking about breaking it up? Yeah, uh, there's a flaw in our constitution. We need to fix that flaw, and here's my proposal for fixing it. Well, um, if you stick with the constitution based on parliamentary sovereignty. That can never be a permanent solution because exactly. you, know, well, you can yeah. legislate whatever you like, but we can't we can't entrench anything, whether it's yeah. a negative or a positive proposition. Um, so yeah, I mean, and as I was saying earlier, I mean, you do hear that kind of attitude, but not it's not very widespread. Still, it's still not very widespread. 
most most of the arguments from the UK government side on why no second referendum have been on have been at the kind of now is not the time level rather than no never you know there is no right in even in principle to become independent and and, and I think you know that there's there's a degree of uh, that that gives a glimmer of of, of hope that, that that at some point now will become the time. I mean, it, it, it does sound problematic, and some people have said uh, that the Scottish government made a terrible mistake in going to the Supreme Court uh, because all they've done is set lots of hairs running. It was completely unnecessary. They should just have stuck to their guns and said, you know, if we've got a majority, uh, then we will uh, we will keep asking the UK. Uh, government to come to the negotiating table. It was completely unnecessary to involve the Supreme Court. Um, well, I mean, they have been asking for a, another Section 30 order since March 2017 uh, and keep getting the answer no. I mean, I, I think the, the Scottish government would have felt under some pressure to to make progress on this. And the, the only way they can do that is to try to uh, legislate by themselves. But to legislate by themselves, they have to overcome this hurdle of getting the Lord Advocate's agreement um, to sign off a competence statement because a bill cannot be introduced into the Scottish Parliament unless the minister in charge thinks that it is within competence and under the Scottish Ministerial Code that requires the Lord Advocate sign off. So, you know, the Lord Advocate has been in this kind of uh, blocking situation. And, and what we've seen in in, uh, in the Supreme Court over the past couple of days is that she's obviously very uncomfortable uh, being in that situation. She doesn't think that it should be her decision whether or not, you know, a referendum bill gets to be introduced or not. She thinks that that's a question that needs a, mu a much more authoritative answer that needs to be argued out in public, to be justified in public. And I think, you know, I think she's right that, you know, that is highly problematic if one person can, you know, within the Scottish government, because she's not sure, um, can stop a bill going ahead. So, uh, you know, I, I think that, I, I, I don't think this was a mistake. I think this had to be resolved at some point. I mean, if they had, introduced a bill, if it had been passed by the would have been passed by the Parliament, it would have been referred to the Supreme Court anyway. So get it over and done with sooner rather than later. And I hope we will get an answer on the substantive question. I think we will, even if even if the court decides the reference wasn't properly made, I think they will still express an opinion on the substantive issue, whether i.e. whether that Holyrood can legislate for a referendum. But, but that, that sort of means that, I mean, I'm a businessman and I would have regarded that as a high-risk strategy. I mean, why, why would you want to poke the, the wasp's nest when you could just as easily sit there and keep asking and asking and asking? As soon as you do what they're doing now, effectively you invite a court to rule against you. In that case, you've made it impossible, really. Now, you, you could argue, well, you would, whatever happens, you would still have needed somebody at Westminster to agree. Whatever the Supreme Court decides, you still need somebody at Westminster to agree that a referendum can take place. I mean, that's well, the case. Well, 
Westminster has to agree at some level. It, it, it either has to agree explicitly, as it did in 2014, because the Scotland Act was amended, or it has to agree implicitly in that it is already within the powers of the Scottish Parliament under the Scotland Act, which was passed by Westminster. Uh, they may not have said so expressly, but implicitly that power was already in there. So, yeah, in that sense, Westminster's agreement is, is, is required. I mean, I think... On the politics of this, I mean, I'm I'm a lawyer, not I'm not I'm not a, a political scientist or a political analyst. Mm. I mean, it seems to me that the Scottish government had to make some kind of progress. We were we were at an an, an impasse, uh, and and that the impasse needed to be broken somehow. Uh, and this, you know, even if the answer is is a negative one, well, you've moved on, right? One one issue has been resolved, and you can move on to uh, onto something. Is it a good thing to be stuck on process from a tactical point of view for the independence movement? It, in some ways, it is a good thing because you know the, the blocking of of Scottish democracy has a certain traction in terms of uh, driving support for independence, but. It's undesirable in, in insofar as it keeps us off the substance. While we're talking about process, how we get to a referendum and who can authorise one, we're not talking about what independence would look like and whether or not it's a good thing. And, and you know, ultimately, those substantive questions are far more important um, than the, the process questions. We, we need a process that's legitimate. We need a process that everybody can agree to, even if they don't agree with. But the substance is is what really is what really matters, and, and when process is getting in the way of substance, you've got a problem, I think. Yeah, I mean, some people have said, you know, why again in relation to the Supreme Court, why not just go straight to the United Nations and say, look here, you have a, a ruling on self determination. We would like to exercise our rights under that ruling, and we want your help to do so. So, I mean, I'm going to heavily caveat that this with that. I'm not an international lawyer and I don't really know how the process operates of how you go to the International Court of Justice. But, I mean, the, the problem with, with relying on the international law right of self-determination is, is one that was highlighted in the Quebec secession reference that was actually, they got a mention today at, right at the end of the, of the Supreme Court case. Uh, in that case the Supreme Court of Canada drew a distinction between internal self-determination and external self-determination. Self so internal determination is where you have where a, a people, a group of people, a, a group recognised as a people in international law, has a high degree of internal autonomy versus a people which is genuinely oppressed. Uh, and has no no self-determination at all. And the Supreme Court of Canada said it's only that second group, the oppressed, that have the right of external self-determination, i.e. the right to become independent. If you've already got a high degree of internal self-determination, then that is enough to satisfy the right of peoples to self-determination. So it doesn't necessarily... That yes, there is an international right of self-determination. Yes, it is probably the case that Scotland would count as a people in international law, but it doesn't necessarily follow that international law gives us 
the right to become, an enforceable right to become independent. So quite apart from the fact of how how do you take a court a case to the International Court of Justice? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think we would win it if we got there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, in the Canadian situation, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, that Quebec, that, that Supreme Court judgment would have ruled out Quebec, but it may have included the Crow Nation in British Columbia, for example, if that's where they operate from. But possibly, yeah, yeah. But but Quebec already, a province in a federal system with a high degree of autonomy, international law didn't didn't help it. And as a matter of you know, Canadian constitutional law, the court also said, well, you have a right to hold a referendum, but that doesn't mean that you can you have a right to secede from Canada because that engages the interests of the whole country of the other, other countries as well. Yeah. So yeah. all that it would trigger is a duty to negotiate, but yeah. that those negotiations might not might not result in independence. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that... Um, based on what you've been saying tonight, that the preferred route in all of these things in terms of secession is negotiation, is to get people around the table and say, look, this is what we want, this is what you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to uh, trade some horses here Mm -hmm. (laughs) to make sure that you get as much of what you want and I get as much of what I want. And that's the preferred route. Anything else is inferior to that. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, that, that's that's right. That is right. Because anything else, well, you, you certainly don't want to go down a, a route that involves any kind of violence. That would be appalling. You don't want to to, to set up a new or re-establish an independent state in circumstances where you're on appalling terms with your nearest neighbour, yeah. where you know, a large proportion of the population does not accept the legitimacy of the new state and still wishes to be, you know, part of the old state. You want a situation in which you have losers' consent. So the people who lose, they don't like the result, but they accept it. They accept that it's a legitimate result. And that, you know, yeah, that that requires compromise it requires careful deliberation. It requires a process that is regarded as um, as as legitimate, and, and it's frustrating. Of course, it's frustrating if if you uh, you know if you, if you really want something to happen, but if you want that thing to be successful, it is wise, I think, to uh, to try to go about it in in a manner that that is as legitimate as you can possibly achieve. Also, we have to take on board realpolitik. I mean, if you look at the Soviet Union, when it fell apart, (laughs) so all of a sudden places like Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia, who'd all been campaigning for independence and been told it's impossible, it won't work for you, Uh, you need to be run from Moscow, Uh, we'll give you some devolution on the way if that helps you, but uh, nothing more than that. All of a sudden, overnight, they have their independence, it's recognised by the United States, they become members of NATO, all the rest of that stuff, and it Mm -hmm. happens real quick. I mean, it's in relative terms. Mm -hmm. It it seems to me it very much depends on the stability of the state itself. I mean, is, is the state stable and therefore... 
uh, it induces a sense of adherence, which is somewhat emotional, perhaps, mm. as well as strategic. And maybe that's a factor too, which is difficult to uh, 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 interpret, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's difficult to generalize from other cases because because they're you know they are different, aren't they? Catalonia is not the same as Scotland. Scotland is not the same as Quebec. We're certainly not the same as uh, former Soviet republics or. Yeah former colony British colonies in, in Africa. These are different um, different situations. But I mean, I guess what maybe the Russian, uh, the Soviet, collapse of the Soviet Union tells us is, is that life is awfully unpredictable. And we know that. And we sh we've learned that. If we didn't know that before, we've learned that over the past few years, haven't we? So things can happen that you don't, uh, that you don't an anticipate. And, and you know, we are kind of at that position in 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 Scotland at the moment. That we're we're kind of waiting for, on both sides, waiting for the thing that will kind of change political fortunes. Clearly, the you know the unionist tactic in delay is that they hope this will go away. Right? They hope that either the Scottish you know, the the SNP will lose power in Scotland, so the issue is off the agenda, or. Uh, public support for independence will fall significantly. Again, the issues off the agenda. So that's what they're hoping for uh, by delay. But no sign of the of those things happening. The, the Scottish government, the SNP, have to hope for a piece of luck on their side, right? Well, what what you know what might that be? It's difficult to know, but it might be the outcome of a, a UK general election where they hold the balance of power, possibly. You know, who knows what it might be, but but I think it, it is difficult to see the way the way out of this impasse. If the Supreme Court says no referendum, it's difficult to see what the way the way uh, the way out is, barring some kind of unexpected shift of political fortunes on one side or the other. Yeah, and it's difficult to see. A change of political fortunes in Scotland because the, the the settled will appears to be the way we discussed it earlier. Very different to 2014, perhaps, but fairly settled. Whereas when you look at the rest of the UK, it doesn't seem to be as stable as it was back in 2014. There's a sense of I don't know chaos. chaos. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. I mean. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to put my kind of constitution, UK constitutional lawyer hat on, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, I I suppose I, I'm somebody who grew up thinking that the UK had a competent system of government. And that's taken a bit of a battering, you know, that's a competent and, and that people had in tech, people in public life had integrity and weren't corrupt and all of these things. And, and, and you know, it's it's harder and harder to 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 maintain that that view of the UK because it does seem to be getting worse you know you, you go from Boris Johnson who seemed to be awful to somebody who is extraordinarily worse I mean so where do we go where do we go from Liz Truss well it's I mean it's it, it, it's a it's a it's an interesting point isn't it and uh, um, you know it, it, it's it, it starts to make the arguments different now. It, 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 there's a sense of, um, there's almost a sense of uh, sort of catharsis in some way. I don't quite how to describe it, but things feel very different. I mean, yeah. Uh, and, well, 
Yeah, in 2014, the unionist side was playing very, very heavily on the strength and stability of the UK, particularly its economic strength and stability and its standing in the world. And, and, and those have taken a real battering, not because of anything that's happened out in the world, but through self-imposed... Um, you know, self-imposed decisions, self-imposed shooting in the foot, if you like, which is, you know, well. Yeah, Eileen, <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. We're almost running out of time. Is there anything that you feel we ought to have said or you would like to have liked to say before we close? Not particularly, no. It's been it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Um, I've enjoyed it. Well, like I say to all of our guests, if you find this material helpful, you want to use it for your own purposes, feel free to do so. It's very much in the public domain. Everything we do is out there. I, I noticed that Nicola Sturgeon, by the way, just uh, in closing, has pledged that the NHS will be secured in a written constitution on independence. And we, we're having a poll tonight in which we're asking people, would you like to see a written constitution for Scotland? I'm not quite sure what the, if the results of the poll are, are available, but I found your remarks about the, the sort of uncodified constitution for the UK very interesting because mm-hmm. on the one hand, it, it provides flexibility, but maybe there's a lot of times when you actually don't need flexibility at all. <laughs> and you need to well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> flexibility is, is one thing, but not having a clue what the, the rules are or not being able to enforce the rules yeah, I mean, one of the things we've seen over the course of the Brexit process is just a, a kind of collapse of, of common understandings. A, a one example would be the Sewell Convention, the, the, the way that we understood that to operate and what it meant has been completely turned on its head. You know, that, that then it barely seems like a rule anymore. I think if it wasn't written into the Scotland Act and the Wales Act, we probably, we might not even be talking about it as a convention because it just... You know, it's so easily overridden. But, but you know, there's been a lot of, of, of that, that, that things that seem to be fairly solid and certain turn out to be, yeah, much more flim- flimsy or, or, or uh, less well-founded than, uh, yeah. than we might have thought, yeah. We have a saying on the show that the British Constitution can be described in one sentence, it is whatever the government of the day with the working majority says it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I might be taking it too far, but that's mm-hmm. so. mm-hmm. a big thank you. Let me just say very quickly what the results of the poll were. 96% of the folks on uh, YouTube felt there ought to be a written constitution. 86% uh, said yes to a written constitution on Facebook. And 96% said yes to a written constitution on Twitter. Uh, so far, over 500 votes. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, in an independent Scotland, I think we will have a written constitution. I think there's no there's no question about that. Um, so, yeah, it, the, the, the real interesting debates will be what's in it, what kind of constitution is it, and what's, what does it contain? Well, the sooner we start that debate, the better, perhaps. <laughs> a big thank you, Eileen. Many, many thanks indeed. Uh, I hope all our audience have enjoyed it as much as I have. We're here to educate, inform, and entertain And I think we've achieved all of that tonight. Big thank you to you. Very interesting set of possibilities there raised by our guest Aileen McHarg. So join us again next week for more Scottish Independence podcasts. If you've missed any, then you can get them on our website, which is podcasts.independencelive.net. 
and we also have mail list which you can sign up to if you'd like to get a, the odd newsletter from us. We also have a Discord channel if you want to drop in and chat. You can get both those links on our website. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.